On Friday, we witnessed yet another terrorist attack. Grateful that the security services have reportedly foiled dozens and dozens of attacks, this one got through. Same place as the previous one two and a half years ago, London Bridge. Two people lost their lives in the attack. Third life that was lost was the terrorist himself. How ironic that this man had already been in prison for other terrorist-related activity. And all the more poignant that one of the people he brutally murdered was a person who has devoted his life to the rehabilitation and help of those people who have been convicted. The London mayor made a very strong point of saying in this incident we see both at the same time the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. He was referring, of course, to the bravery and courage of police officers, security officers, who unlike the rest of us or most of us, when there is danger, the sensible thing is to run away from it. They have to run towards it, but there was another group of people who didn't have to run towards it, but who realized that something had to be done quickly to prevent further loss of life, and they put their own lives on the line to do that. They did not think of themselves, but thought of others, and were prepared to sacrifice whatever it took to get it done. That is a remarkable human example of a divine story that we come to each Christmas time, but actually we live it out every day of our lives. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. True greatness has many attributes, many contributing factors that work together, particularly as they are accompanied by relentless, continuous, practical action. Many of these things demonstrate greatness, true greatness. But if you were to ask various people, what is greatness? Einstein would have said, insatiable curiosity. He said, I've got no talent to speak of, just an insatiable curiosity. Look where it got him. They say curiosity killed the cat. Well, it got us E equals MC squared. Mother Teresa, if you asked her what is greatness, she would, she would probably have said compassion. Ask Picasso, and he would have said boldness. He's quoted as saying that every painting is a recovery from that first stroke. Leonardo da Vinci, intellect and ingenuity. Leonardo DiCaprio, my good looks. <laughs> Lionel Messi and Cristiano Rinaldi, I'm not going to argue which was the best. Make your own choice. But they probably would say sheer talent. But I think all these things have their place and define greatness in some respects. They do not define true greatness because we cannot think of what true greatness is unless and until we think of that vertical dimension, God's view of greatness. Now there was something happening in the church at Philippi that was robbing them of true greatness. And that was division and disunity which was being played out by a mother of all tussles between two prominent women leaders and partners in the ministry with Paul in the church. And so Paul writes to the whole church saying, come on guys, let's, let's sort this out because if our unity is compromised, then we will not be able to demonstrate who God is and demonstrate the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And that's why in this church and indeed in every church, holding to our unity and maintaining our unity and not allowing divisions to enter in must be at the top of the agenda. But when Paul deals with disunity, he doesn't just say, come on guys, sort it out. He goes to the root of it. And what is the link between the evil that we saw in that terrorist attack, although presumably done in the name of God or a God, which isn't the God that we serve. 
doesn't mean to say just because you have a religious faith that you're on the right side of greatness. What's in common with that and what we see played out on our television screens, I think if I hear about another debate, I will personally scream. We better get insurance out on the television at home. And what does all of that have to do with us? It's all rooted in the same stuff. Yes, there are different extremes, different outworkings, different manifestations. But instead of just pointing the finger at saying, listen to those lying politicians, self-serving, self-seeking politicians, or look at that crazy man who has a religious ideology that wants to kill. Let's also look into our own hearts. Paul puts his finger on the source, the root of disunity, the self-serving attitudes and behavior, the selfish ambition, self-assertion, pride, and sheer lack of love. Because love, best defined, as far as I'm concerned, is focusing on the needs of others rather than your own needs or your wants and your wishes. And doing so practically, no matter what it costs you. And Paul wants to focus on the mindset of true greatness, hence my title, Great Minds Think Like Jesus. Verses 1 through 4 that I read to you earlier are really all about love. Love encourages others, doesn't tear them down, builds them up, does not diminish them, does not behave selfishly. Love is sacrificial at times, maybe at all times. So, my question is, why did those members of the public run towards danger instead of away from it? Because there was a bigger picture that they were concerned about. The fight against terrorism, the safety of our city and its uh, citizens, and the bold belief that evil must be stopped. Self-sacrifice only makes sense when there is a bigger picture. And the big picture that defines our lives and defines for us the greatness to which we inspire is the God story. Each of us has a part to play in this story. We are not the protagonist. We don't star in this drama. Years ago, and all too much of this information is coming out for my own comfort, but as I have started, I will finish. After my father died, I was still a student, and the Royal Ballet School had pity on me and allowed me to appear in all kinds of productions at the Royal Opera House, including the opera productions. And I was able to stand from the wings and hear the great sopranos of the day. Well, I think she's a soprano, Jessie Norman. If Ruth Ann was here, she'd correct me. Anyway, she was a, an, a, a remarkable singer. Jessie Norman would walk out on the stage and turn towards the platform, turn towards the people, look up, to the gods, as we call it, 
lower her gaze because you can't sing when you're stretching your vocal cords. And then something happened in her body. She was a substantial lady, and of course, and something was happening. And then, about 30 seconds after you noticed something, you heard something. It was the sound of her voice reaching to every quarter of the Royal Opera House. And my contribution to the performance was a very minor part. I didn't sing, so don't worry. I carried a spear, on and off, quick as a flash. But I knew that I was a tiny part of one of the most memorable performances from a diva, if ever there was a diva, it was our darling Norma, Jesse Norman. I had a part to play. But there is a drama which is not mere theatre, it is historical. It is being played out now in your life, in my life, with every surrender to the name of Jesus. And because we are part of such a great story, one film called it the greatest story ever told. In fact, it is more than that, it is the greatest story that could ever be told. The story of how Jesus Christ laid aside his majesty and every outward manifestation of divinity emptied himself of that and embraced our frail humanity and joined us on this planet to sit where we sit and to serve us in obedience to God the Father, even to the point of death sacrifice for the sins of the world. So the bigger story is what causes us to humble ourselves and put aside self-centeredness and every natural human desire that we perhaps have, not everybody aspires to greatness, some people aspire simply to be able to get out to the shops and back because of their illness or confinement. Maybe that has more to do with greatness than some of the people who make our history books. The coming of God into this world to redeem it and restore it, to overthrow the rule of darkness, to eradicate sin, death and the grave. Paul reaches the height of poetic prose in verses 5 to 7. Let this mind be in yourselves as it was also in Christ. And as he goes through this, it is so poetic, it is so rhythmic. The vocabulary is high, higher than normal for Paul, that many scholars down through the years have postulated a theory that Paul was borrowing from the worship language, the hymn of the day. And if that is the case, and it may well be, doesn't that tell us a little bit about the worship of the early church? Truth, 
high theological truths moving our hearts to worship the one who came and paid such a price, the one who is God, the one who is God manifested in the flesh. The one who paved the way for every would-be disciple to follow in his footsteps that we might be like him. And the one who lives within us not just as an, as an outward model to follow, a pattern to repeat, but a living presence. Jesus is more than a model. He is a life to be lived. Worship. But if Paul actually had a moment when he was carried away into poetic brilliance, then it tells us a whole lot about the way that high truth should change the way we live and think. His main theme is humility. Not self-assertion, but humble self-sacrifice within the context of the greatest story that could ever be told. Have this mind in yourselves which was also in Christ. That's the English Standard Version's translation. And other translations say, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ. In other words, Christ had that attitude and we follow it. But there is a truth there. When, when, when you've got two truths, and the, the reason for this interpretation is simply because in high... Greek, uh, often verbs are missed out and the verb to be is supplied. Don't worry about that. But there are two legitimate ways of reading it. And when there are two legitimate goods, I want both. If somebody says, would you like apple pie or ice cream? I don't cut. I cut through the dilemma and say, I'll have both, please. Try that in the next restaurant. Apple pie or ice cream? Set menu. I'll have both. Well, you can't have. Why not? I take them both. And there are two truths here. First of all, Jesus Christ is the model that we follow. We want his life, which begins in this great mindset we're describing. We want that model to be followed in our lives. We want to follow it. We want, we want to be like him. But for a moment, think how impossible that is. It was so unusual. Actually, it's not many, many uh, examples where people just don't think in the moment about themselves. Stand between danger and other people to protect them. But it is remarkable in as much as it's pointed out and it gives us some encouragement to see that there are still people who, in this selfish world, who don't just think of themselves. That's at the natural level, but, but we're talking about something far deeper. We're talking about being like one who has set us an example that is impossible to follow without 
his help. So when it says, have this mind in yourselves, which you have in Christ, that's an encouragement. Because when Paul says, this is yours in Christ, that truth really can be inverted to talk about what we have because Christ is in me. And so we're not trying to do something that, that we are incapable of doing without the help of God. Jesus is a model. Be humble because he was humble. We ought not to please ourselves because Jesus didn't please himself. We're to excel in the grace of giving and forgiving because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the essence of the Christian life is that Christ is reproduced in us as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and surrender to him. But it all begins with an attitude. Let this mind have this attitude. It's not a fleeting thought. It's a mindset. And this is the mindset that we must adopt uh, and actually internalize. It's a mindset that refuses the pull of selfishness. Particularly selfish ambition. Ambition, godly ambition, is a good thing. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, here's how to get it. Be a servant. Servanthood is not the path to greatness. Servanthood is greatness. Yeah? Selfish ambition. Good ambition, godly ambition, fine. Selfish ambition is where we want to promote ourselves, our agenda, our greatness, at the expense of other people. Uh, they, they say, uh, be careful who you tread on on the way to the top, because you're going to meet them on the way down. But we know that there are people who will stop at nothing. Now, I understand in the political realm how important it is to put your best face forward. And I understand the temptation to, to tell the truth from a perspective that makes you look good. After all, you want people to vote for you. But we have seen evidence, not just in this campaign, but many campaigns where truth has nothing to do with it. I'll say anything for you to elect me. And there are stories of selfish ambition in every sphere of life. The people who claw their way to the top of the company. People who, who are, say, well, I'm right behind you. Really? Yes. Because then I can stick a knife in your back. <laughs> I wish to say, wish I could say that in the church of Jesus Christ, it's different. But it's not always different. Whenever we as the church behave like the world, we have positions of authority and, uh, and people have ambition to rise in, in positions in the church, which are very often man-made pos positions. It's all so human, it's all so depressing. But we meet Jesus. 
who he says, the Bible says of him, though being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing. In the form of God, surely the form of Jesus or Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is talking about his glory. Isaiah had a vision of the glory of Christ, Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord, his glory was everywhere. And John in John chapter 12 verse 41 says, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. Ezekiel, speaking about the glory, says, I saw the image of the likeness of the glory of God. Form is about the expression of divinity. Very often it's described in glorious terms. But that form was fitting because he was who he is. He wasn't robbing God by displaying God's glory. It was his equal right. And anyway, as the eternal son of the eternal God, Jesus was in full submission, not subordination, but full submission to the Father's glory. But Jesus said, if I have to give up all of this, in order to embrace the form of humanity, I will do it gladly because it's your will. Because it's the key outworking of the story of God who so loved the world that gave his one and only son. And we know that Jesus felt this very deeply because at the end of his life, the end of his ministry, before he went to the cross, he prayed this prayer, John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was in the form manifested the glory of God. He was on an equality with God. It was the actual glory of God, not the lesser glory of a lesser being. On an equality with God. And he said, this equality that I have, this equal display of the glory of God, which is my right, it's, it belongs to me for my nature. I am not going to assert my rights. I will waive my rights. It was nothing that I want to hold on to. The word for grasp is translated robbery in the King James Version. He thought it not robbery to be on an equality with God. In other words, he didn't rob God of glory by having it himself. Neither did he hold on to it to the point of saying, you're not going to get this away from me. This is my right. No, no. He let it go. And there's also a sense in which you can read this. Jesus did not grasp after a glory. 
That was not his to grasp. As we go through, we will see, of course, that Jesus was glorified and was given a name of authority, and we understand that to be the actual executive governing of the universe, which was normally the Father's province. And Jesus was given it only one day to hand it back to the Father. So he's not a grasping person asserting his rights, trying to use his position for his own personal gain or advantage. It was the exact opposite of that. And so the attitude of true greatness is first of all, refusing to assert your own selfish ambition above the plan of God for your life. The second aspect of a great mindset, the mindset of greatness, is that you do so, you, you lay aside your own ambition in order to participate in the bigger story. And the bigger story is the, not just an alternative, actually it is the story. There is no other story, ultimately, in the universe, other than the story of the God who existed before creation, brought creation into beings that we could be in loving fellowship with him and then sent Christ when we broke that fellowship to restore us to himself. This is a love story. But it is a love that is traced not with lace doilies and cupids shooting arrows at overripe hearts. It's a story that is forged in blood, tears, Agony, the death on the cross. So only a life surrendered to God's story, God's will, can be great in God's eyes. Now, this is no choice. I want you to think it through, but I know what your answer is. No choice, really, but let me put it before you. If you were given a choice... To achieve greatness in the eyes of the world or to achieve greatness in the eyes of God. What would you choose? Don't answer. You'd all choose this, wouldn't you? Because you, you, you have this understanding that, that that God being ultimate reality, his opinion counts. And, and that's very easy to say on a Sunday morning after a communion service. But on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday when that <clears throat> rises. Do you know what <clears throat> is? That's a theological expression. It's the struggle when God's will seems to be in conflict with your will and you know that your will feels better. Using that human example again, I, I don't know what I would have done. You don't know until you're in that situation, do you? 
But I, I tell you, everything within me would be about, get the heaven out of here. It's dangerous. Don't be so stupid. And I'm not so sure that at the time they felt good. Oh, I'm being a really good Samaritan here. I'm wrestling with a man who's a knife has killed two people and is going to kill me. But never mind. This is a nice day. They weren't thinking. Maybe they weren't. They, they say it's instinctive. You don't necessarily have those thoughts. But it was not easy. It was not pleasant. It was very dangerous. And it could have cost them everything. But with Jesus, there's no speculation about that. It was not easy. It cost him everything. And that is the attitude of greatness. Why? For the sake of it? No. I advise you, in every situation, get out of trouble, keep yourself safe. Right? Good advice, yes? But when the bigger story kicks in, if we don't get this guy, he's going to kill other people. We can't let that happen. We can't let terrorism win. We have to do what we can. There's a bigger story. The safety, security of others. That's the bigger story. And it's that story that the security services and the police officers buy into when they become policemen, policewomen, police and security officers. They know the cost and they make that decision. I'm doing something that could cost me my life, but it's a good thing to do for the benefit of everybody. And if that is true in the human realm, how much more is it true when it comes to the divine story? True greatness is the mindset of Jesus that led him to leave the comfort of heaven. Comfort. I, um, I like comfort. I travel a lot. I live out of suitcases. But I put in the suitcases, that's why I have so many, everything that I can think of in advance that might make me comfortable. A kettle, when you can't get a cup of tea. <laughs> and some tea bags. I even got a little coffee pot. I have... Everything around, I put everything in the case to remind me of home except Amanda. <laughs> she won't go in the suitcase. And I kind of feel good. I might be in an Airbnb or I might be in a luxury hotel. Please, Lord, more hotels. But when I close that door, shut myself in, and take out the things that I've packed. I feel comfortable. I feel at home. This is good. But you know, it's not enough. There are times, many times, and whole seasons whereby we have to go through discomfort. 
and choose it in order to see the kingdom come. Have you ever come to that point in your life where God has chosen something uncomfortable for you that you'd rather have him change his mind? Anybody been there? The rest of you are, I don't know, but it's, it happens to all of us, yeah? But we embrace the bigger story. There I was carrying my spear with this superstar opera singer, Jessie Norman. Some of you looked at me, don't even know who she is. You ought to get out more. <laughs> and I was part of the performance. I was on stage. You wouldn't have noticed me, but that's not the point. And in this big story, your little role is so significant because you put all the little roles together and you have a production. Now I take it out of theater. You have the reality of God's historical story and it hinges on the humility of Christ in humanity and calls us to emulate him, not by external effort, but by allowing the life of Christ to manifest and flourish in us. We too embrace the bigger story. No matter what it costs. Yeah? That's the deal. He gives us some examples and things to be concerned about. When he called the Apostle Paul, he said, tell him the things he's going to have to suffer. But God does not always reveal what's ahead for us when we follow Christ. Some of my people who, when I say my people, the people that I'm teaching in this newly found, founded Bible school, they travel across dangerous territory. By disappearing, they lose their jobs, come back to nothing. They are persecuted by their own people, the things that they suffer would make us, what shall I say, make us pray for them, but also wonder about our own commitment when sacrifice is brought before us. But the fruits are amazing. One man, and you know me, I'm, I'm not very formal. And one man, I saw him, knew a class member, he stood like this. He stood like that. He had a beard. And I said, oh, look at you. You must be a sheikh. You must be a leader. God bless you. He is the head of a tribe of 60,000 people. 600,000 people attached to the greater connection of that tribe. He has come to Christ. He's teaching the sword of the Spirit. And the time is coming very soon when that whole tribe will convert to Christ because of the witness of this man. Let me just put it aside here. You do not know Kensington Temple people the opportunity that God has given us as a church 
to make a difference in Britain and the nations. That story of mine could be multiplied with every person here. Say, well, that great story, Colin. Let me tell you what's happening in my office. Let me tell you what's happening in my cell group. Let me tell you what's happening in my family. Story after story after story of the fruits that come from humble self-sacrifice because we put God's story first in our lives. No matter what it costs. So greatness is measured by a mindset that refuses to grab at positions of power or promotion of self. Measured by the one who himself emptied himself of all but love. That's the words of John Wesley, Charles Wesley emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The one who trod a path of passionate other orientation, whatever it cost him, not theoretically, but practically and actually it cost him everything, knowing that the God whom we serve is the God who will richly reward us for after Sacrifice comes fruitfulness. After the cross comes resurrection and exaltation. I do not believe that Jesus said, I'm going to do this to make myself better. He said, no, I'm going to do this to serve my Father and to serve humanity. But out of such sacrifice, out of such a mentality of true greatness, we find God able to manifest what greatness really is. You live with that attitude of greatness, self-sacrifice and humility, and one day God will show the world the greatness, the true greatness of his kingdom through your life and manifest his glory through you in such a way as you can say, thank you, Father, but to you be all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.